Welcome to the Open Apple Podcast, where we celebrate the Apple II. Whether you're a long-time user, a nostalgic visitor, or a newcomer to the community, join us as we share news and memories of Steve Wozniak's most famous personal computer. Hello and welcome to Open Apple. This is episode 57 for March 2016. I am your co-host, the first, Quinn Dunkey, and with me as always is co-host, the second, Mike McGinnis. How are you doing, Mike? Insert golf clap sound effect here. Yay, I'm here. Woo. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, where, is that, was that an edit point or are you just being an idiot? No, I'm a little of both. I haven't okay. decided yet. Yeah. <laughs> Good. How are you, Quinn? I'm doing well, doing well. I've uh, been very busy lately, but carved out a little bit of time to play with some retro gadgets, uh, as we'll be talking about later. Uh, Great. And, uh, of course, I'm uh, very excited about our uh, interview today. Yeah, this is uh, this is definitely a coup, and it's all because you're uh, internet famous now. That's how, uh, <laughs> that's how you contacted him. <laughs> sure. <laughs> well, we've been yeah. trying for quite some time to to get him. Well, I mean, if you've seen the if you downloaded this podcast, you already know we're talking to Bill Budge today. So I don't know why I keep saying him secretively or something. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so we've been trying for a while, and no response, no response, no response, and then you're post went viral and suddenly he's available to us yeah <laughs> yeah i think that was probably a coincidence um i actually okay, uh, yeah i actually worked at the same company as bill uh, a few years ago and uh, so he remembered me and uh yeah mainly it was just a, i think a case of um he's a busy guy and uh sure yeah yeah we uh, we all have different uh methods of communication that we pay more and uh, less attention to so we found the the one that worked and uh, yeah he was uh, happy to do it so just a case of uh, finding a window, and uh, unfortunately, um, for our listeners, get our, their hopes too high. <laughs> uh, <laughs> wow! Uh, so you know, I'm no podcasting expert, but uh, I have never seen that much trouble with Skype and all of our software and stuff before. Uh, has has it ever been that bad for you? No, that's that's uh, that's definitely one for the books. I, I yeah. haven't. I, we um, Bill doesn't normally use Skype. Um, we'll pull back the curtain here a little bit. And, um, and he had a very old version installed. And I guess when he did the upgrade, because Skype is a Microsoft product and they don't know what they're doing on their own platform, let alone Mac, it didn't overwrite some files that it needed to. And so we couldn't, we couldn't get the three of us connected. I could connect to you. I could connect to Bill, but I couldn't get all three of us in a group chat. So we... Yes. Um, we tried that for a while. We went over to Hangouts. So that was even worse. So we came back to Skype. Um, and then finally Bill discovered, oh, if I just go and delete these files manually and install it, of course, he had given us about an hour because, you know, like you said, busy guy and stuff. And I think we had burned through like about 25 minutes at that point. Yeah. So. Yeah. Maybe even half an hour. Yeah. Yeah. So by the time we got everything working, uh, yeah, the time, time was very tight. So there was definitely things that, uh, uh, more things that uh, would have been nice to talk about, but you know we're uh, we're really glad that uh, we got the time that we did. Um, so yeah, I mean, <laughs> and boy did we try, folks. That was amazing. At one point we had uh, we had you and I in a Google Hangout, and I could see you but not hear you. And then right. <laughs> the camera point, up and <laughs> yeah, you were literally m- miming to me. And then at one point you had Bill in voice, and I had Bill in I am, but like we couldn't hear each other. <laughs> it just wow, it was yeah, it could not have been more technical problems and it could not have happened at a worse time so yeah it felt like it was the keystone cops you know <laughs> yeah and of course the fact that we were on a on a, a clock there just made things worse because i'm watching the minutes tick away mm-hmm. like, oh, yeah no. that was agonizing but we, we do 
Yeah, but we do appreciate that that Bill did stick with us for the rest of the time and that he was patient for our follies. And hey, the good news is all that time that you don't get to listen to Bill, you get to listen to me and Quinn some more. <laughs> That's right. We're going we're gonna to fill that time, folks, rest assured. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> uh, oh, and uh, the icing on the cake, of course, is that we, uh, <laughs> we forgot to ask Bill to record his audio locally, <laughs> uh, which we normally ask the guests to do. Um, so we have to rely on the Skype call recorder uh, audio. So the quality isn't quite up to uh, our high open apple standards uh, she says in scare quotes but uh <laughs> it's uh yeah it should be uh should be a fun listen anyway and um well why don't we um why don't we just get to that yeah i think we've had enough ado as they say so uh uh bill budge ladies and gentlemen i'm lane Nooney. i'm a video game and computer historian and you're listening to the open apple podcast all right, joining us on the show now is uh, the one and only Bill Budge, famous Apple II programmer, who all of our listeners already know. Uh, welcome to the show, Bill. Thanks, Quinn. Nice to be here. <laughs> all right, so uh, why don't we jump in with the uh, first question that we love to ask everybody. Uh, why Apple II? What, uh, what was it about it that, that machine that, uh, that got you started? Well, it's Kind of funny. Um, I, I was looking at a bunch of different machines, but in uh, 1980, it wasn't all that easy to buy a personal computer. Um, I was looking at the TRS-80, and there was one called a CompuColor. Um, mm-hmm. I had a, a really good friend, uh, Andy Hertzfeld, and he had an Apple II, so I actually, um, was a grad student with him at UC Berkeley at the time. And I went over to his apartment and checked it out and really thought it was great, and he was doing some amazing stuff on it. So I put an order in with a store that said they could get them and waited for a few months and there was sort of nothing. And then I found a place that had them, a little TV store in San Francisco called Village Electronics, and finally got it. Um, had to take out a little bit of a loan from my, my mom and dad. Uh, it was about $2,000 for a minimal Apple II at that point. Yeah, and that was a lot of money back then. Yeah, it was a lot, I, and I had to pretty much immediately upgrade it to 48K. That you know, it was a couple hundred dollars for 16K of RAM and uh, a disk drive. The tape tape storage on a cassette recorder was really flaky and kind of annoying. I didn't have a tape recorder anyway, so I ended up getting a, a disk drive. Yeah, it was quite an investment, but I, you know, in retrospect, probably the best investment I, I made in my life. <laughs> yeah, I think that goes for all of us. So the, the sort of the first game that you're kind of on record for is one called Penny Arcade, right? Which was sort of a Pong type of game. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, can you talk about the journey from sort of getting that Apple II to actually putting out that first game? Yeah, well, it's kind of a kind of a long journey. Um, the Apple II came with a uh, red manual um, with a, a bunch of listings of uh, programs that were built into the computer, and also a game called Breakout which was in low-res uh, color graphics on the Apple II. And so when I'd power up my Apple II and wanted to play with it, I would type that program in. It was fairly long, a couple hundred lines of basic, and uh, get it working and play it. I got pretty good at that game, as you can imagine, pretty tired of typing it in. Um, and after a while, I started thinking about ways that I could maybe make it more challenging. I got so good that I could uh, play almost a perfect game, and that was boring. So I wanted to make the game go faster, and I started by trying to modify the basic code, and um, but it only could go so far. I could make it go pretty fast, but it was the ball was sort of jumping around. I didn't know how to do collision detection, and um, in any case, it, it wasn't really very interesting. So I got kind of um, interested in maybe making a high res graphics version of it because 
the low res graphics was about 40 by 40 and the high res was um, 192 by uh, 280 and that was uh, a lot higher res um, and so I started playing with uh, using the shape tables in, in the ROM to draw the ball mm -hmm. and it turned out that that was way too slow so yeah. in using basic so then I had to make a jump to assembly language and started playing with that. Half of the battle there was trying to figure out the mapping of the high-res graphics, <laughs> how to map X oh, yes. coordinates. Yeah. So that yeah. was, there wasn't a, the documentation for that was basically look at how Waz did it in the ROM <laughs> in assembly language. So um, kind of had to make a pretty big jump, although the assembly language is very simple, you know, by today's standards, almost minimal, but um, it's kind of a big leap to, to going from programming in basic to uh, programming in assembler and understanding the architecture. Um, so I, I made a routine to plot, uh, given an XY coordinate, plot a dot on the screen. And then I built a bunch of games out of that. The, the Penny Arcade I, uh, game ideas came from Pong, obviously. Pong was a game that I, you know, was fairly common at that point. I could see it. Uh, there was a pizza parlor near um, where I lived at UC Berkeley. And they had a Pong uh, uh, cocktail table sort of format game, and it was kind of interesting to look at it, and I thought I could do that. So I programmed something, basically a Pong game. That's my, one of my first uh, first um, apps that I've written in high-res graphics. Very cool. So then the next uh, the next game that sort of the Internet thinks you made was uh, Tranquility Base. Is that true? Well, so I, I, I made that Pong game, and I made a bunch of – I tried to make variations of it. Um, people were saying, oh, you could maybe sell these. And I tried to sell them to various game companies. And it turned out that at that point, nobody really had any money. And people were willing to sort of like, well, we could try, but can't make you any promises. And finally, I, um, I gave them to Apple in exchange for a printer. And that got me excited. I, hey, I could write uh, a game a week. And you know, a printer is like $700. And maybe I could make some money, but hadn't quite figured out how to sell a game. And and Tranquility Base sort of came out of that. Yeah, I had this, um, I had evolved my graphics routines a little bit beyond like point plotting. I could actually draw very poorly anti-aliased lines. I had a, I didn't really know the right algorithm at that point, the Bresenham, which sort of distributes its error in a way that makes um, sort of um, low resolution display rendered lines look pretty good. My lines were pretty ugly. Um, but I used that to make the tranquility base. The lander had little um, line segments for the legs, and a little box was like four line segments to make a rectangle. Um, it's pretty rough, but uh, and then the physics of you know it's kind of funny, but physics looks so impressive. They're very simple the math to simulate that. Um, it's you know by today's standards again a very low quality physics simulation, but um, doing integration in a very um, a very poor way, but it looked pretty good. And um, Space Wars was uh, a game, one of the first games that um, I ever saw on a computer. And so it was kind of an homage to that, I guess. And there was a guy who'd been bugging me for a long time named Barney Stone to make a game that he could sell. He had a little software company called Stoneware. And so I made that game for him. And um, I think it came after like the other games that I did though. Um, the, the trilogy of games and um, space album, maybe kind of contemporaneous. And then was uh, was the next sort of big one uh, Raster Blaster, or was there anything in between there? 
I, I think there was one other thing uh, where I took my line drawing routines and some of the uh, other graphic stuff and made a, a package called uh, 3D Game Tool where you could you could sort of do 3D. It was 3D isomorphic projection, not really. Div division was so slow that I didn't mm -hmm. try to do perspective transforms. Although some people ended up being able to do that. The flight simulator programs had perspective transforms. And I made a little space shuttle model by hand, plotting points and connecting with lines. Uh, but that was kind of a minor thing. And it turned out the biggest, the biggest uh, part of the effort for that was writing a manual to explain how to use the thing. I remember kind of cursing myself for the idea because that writing the manual to explain it took a long time, a lot of <laughs> evenings. Um, Raster Blaster was like, a, I guess, you know, looking at it, it's, it's really a quantum leap over um, my mm -hmm. earlier games. Uh, I had kind of realized, um, I, by this point, I was working at Apple and getting a lot of um, stimulation from other people and a lot of ideas. And one of the things I realized was that plotting pixels or drawing lines was, you know, just um, really couldn't, you couldn't get the most performance in actually rendering bitmaps. Uh, there was a routine that Xerox had in their Alto computers called BitBlit which is basically drawing a lot of pixels at once. Uh, it's much more efficient. And uh, Raster Blaster sort of built on that idea. I had written some routines to draw bitmaps, and they use those to draw the balls. And so it looks quite a bit uh, more polished um, and uh, more advanced. Okay, yeah, that's definitely uh, where we see the, the beginning of sort of uh, more modern-looking Apple II games for sure. So from from there, the next sort of reasonable step, the logic extension of Raster Blaster was Pinball Construction Set. Uh, can you talk a bit about uh, what your inspiration was there and, and uh, how you kind of went from, from A to B? Yeah, well, it looks like a very logical progression. There were some difficulties. Um, it's a lot. The Raster Blaster, the table is uh, a database in memory. I don't use the screen contents to do collision detection. And the database was very touchy. The ball, the, the classic problems in collision detection are what to do, you know, making sure you detect all the collisions because if you don't, then you go through things. And the other one is, you know, how do you react when you detect a collision? It's very easy to. Um, do the wrong thing and end up um, getting stuck to things because you can't you you're hitting it and you try to go away but then you're hitting it again so you it, you reverse the direction and you end up just sort of like stuck and the way I dealt with these problems was not very um, not a very mature way I just sort of tweaked things until it kind of worked and that wouldn't work with pinball construction sets so I was really um, I guess my inspiration was though I, I didn't really want to make more pinball tables. It seemed not very interesting after I'd done one. And I was always interested in construction toys. I grew up with things like Tinker Toys and blocks, you know, from a very young age. And I always enjoyed making stuff. So that was an activity that I could identify with. And I thought that that would be fun for people to do too. And no reason to think that, you know, that people would, would be like me that way, but um, so I wanted to, and I, and I could see the technology. I was very strongly influenced again by Apple, what I saw there with the Lisa computer and then later with Macintosh and, you know, all of the Xerox work that, you know, on the, with Smalltalk, um, they had a lot of programs where you could build things, they had visual programming. They were sort of experimenting with all of these ideas. 
So I wanted to make something like that where you could create a, a metaphor on the screen of, of something that the user could manipulate to make things. And mm -hmm. pinball, I, I sort of thought I knew how to do the physics. Um, there were a lot of things that I had to figure out, though, like in Raster Blaster, the, sh the sort of shape of the board and of obstacles on the board um, was sort of fixed. But in, in Pinball Construction Set, I had to find a way to, for the user to be able to make shapes. And it ended up having to do a polygon scan converter. Um, mm -hmm. The user can make shapes that are uh, essentially a bunch of points with edges connecting them to make closed polygons. And um, I didn't know how to scan convert polygons. That means mm -hmm. turn the polygon, which is a ge geometrical entity, into pixels on the screen. So I had to find a graphics book and learn all of that stuff. Um, UC Berkeley didn't have graphics classes at that point. And computers with graphical displays weren't really that common. It was much more typical that you would print output on paper or maybe have a terminal with um, kind of a you know, text sort of command line interface. So, um, yeah, a lot of learning involved, in, but, you, but fairly um, clear progression from like a pinball game to like a pinball maker. That's, that's really interesting. Yeah, I don't think a lot of people appreciate the level of, of sophistication that was in Pinball Construction Set. Yeah, I actually had no idea there was polygon scan conversion and all that going on uh, in there. That's, uh, that's really cool. Yeah, it's a, a very classic, um, something that seems like amazing and different and difficult and impossible, but just a series of small steps technically for me. Um, mm -hmm. Kind of interestingly, uh, about a year or two before I wrote that program, in one of my classes, we were given an assignment to make a calendar program for a microcomputer. And I, I wasn't able to get anywhere because it just there was this huge leap to sort of learning how to use this microcomputer. And, um, and then in two years to go from not being able to even write multiply subroutines to being able to do this program is kind of amazing. But just small steps. It's amazing what you can do with small, in, in a series of the right series of small steps. It's sort of like uh, integrating your career. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, Mike, I'm occupying the conversation here. Uh, why don't you jump in with uh, questions of your own? Oh, I'm definitely uh, enjoying the back and forth here. Um, <laughs> learning a lot about some of my my favorite early titles. I did have um, a question. This, uh, and you may not even know the answer to this, Bill, but um, it, it it has always occurred to me when I look at the that that flip folder for pinball construction set, the art on the front of it with that two hands coming up out of that the grid and, and the ball floating between them. Do you, do you happen to know who did that artwork? Let's see. Um, um, yeah, Electronic Arts was just getting started. They had uh, Regis McKenna was doing PR. And, and so they always had, they had the best people. And they found this ad agency called Goodby Berlin Silverstein. And uh, they were kind of an up and coming agency in San Francisco. And I think now, you know, they're all celebrities in the advertising world. They were you know, very clever, creative guys. And it's a funny story. Um, I had done my own package art for Pinball Construction Set when I had my software company. I actually sold and marketed it for a while. And uh, I went... That was Budgeco, right? Yeah, Budgeco. And I had, uh, you know, done as, I'd done some of the artwork, but I had somebody you know, do the, the package and it was a, quite a bit of work, and I was kind of proud of it. And then I went in to meet um, um, Silverstein. I forget his first name. Um, and he said, oh, can you believe how amateurish this packaging is? And, uh, yeah, they had ideas for making this thing like a, like a record album. 
Um, and it was interesting. I didn't have a whole lot to do with it. I, I, I guess I was interviewed for some of the, um, the copy. And I think Bing Gordon and um, Jeff Goodby were the ones who did the uh, copy. And um, I think one of the interesting things that came out is I, I'm playing pinball. And, and uh, it turns out I'm not very good at pinball. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as, as I recall from some of your early interviews, you didn't actually like games all that much. You, you prefer to to build the tools to to allow other people to create is that right yeah i mean games are incredibly addictive and i have been addicted to games and and i have that kind of personality so um but it does feel a little bit like um you know solving puzzles and figuring things out that's kind of what i do in my day job programming and and the and the problems and puzzles are are a little more interesting and more difficult too but uh, end up having more more real world value, but uh, yeah, I, I totally get that games are fun, but I find it yeah, a little bit frustrating, and I'm a little bit too lazy to spend enough time to be very good. So it turns out, yeah, I'm pretty terrible at almost every video game. <laughs> it's kind of ironic considering uh, what a contribution you made to, to all the early gaming uh, communities. Yeah, it is. It's, a, it's always been my dirty secret uh, working <laughs> for video games. <laughs> <laughs> well, that uh, that actually leads nicely into my uh, next question, which is about sort of my favorite of your projects, the one that never saw the light of day, the uh, construction set, construction set. Ah. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, so it, I've always been interested in, um, the, I guess if you look at the logical progression, then the next thing for me to do would be a construction set, construction set. Well, what does that mean? <laughs> Um, eventually for me, it meant a, a visual, uh, programming language. And, uh, as funny as it may seem, I'm still interested in that concept. There are many, many, many attempts to do something like that. And, and some of them actually more or less successful in sort of niche areas, but still to me, a construction set construction set is really a program construction set at that point. Um, how do you make something where somebody can put together pieces that then other people could use to put together things to make programs. Um, so you could argue, yes, a construction set. Construction set is C++ or JavaScript. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. and, and those are text-oriented, which keeps out a lot of people. So for me, the, pro the problem of that, of construction set, construction set, is how do you create a metaphor for programming that's more accessible to people who can't turn strings of text into the graphs or, you know, circuits that make up uh, a program. Programmers are good at uh, reading a string of symbols and then building the model in their head. And what is that model exactly? Well, it is a graph of things that are connected. Um, and so the, the visual programming tools that you see, on, um, if you do a search, you know, or look at Wikipedia's article on visual programming languages, you can find, you know, dozens and dozens of these things um, in Things like um, Unreal Editor or um, the Unity Editor, for instance, mm -hmm. you can find um, little visual programming environments for things like controlling animation blending or AI state machines. So there are sort of restricted in, um, domains where you can do this kind of programming. Um, I'm still very interested in, in visual formalisms for making circuits or making state machines. That would be sort of more widely applicable. If you look at, for instance, uh, if you wanted to make an electrical circuit, a text representation of a circuit is possible, but nobody in their right mind would, would use that. It's much more intuitive to use the, the circuit, you know, the graphical circuit representation. Uh, an electrical engineer can understand the circuit much more quick, quickly that way. So something similar. 
And I think that there, there are possibilities. Um, that's kind of my side project um, here at Google. I'm working on um, sort of a newer version of Pinball Construction Set as one project that actually has a much more powerful um, behavior editor than the one that came with the original, which is really a couple of AND gates and you know a few wires that you could hook up. Um, there are some interesting ways to define state machines. And I think I have some interesting ideas for circuits. The, the big problem with circuits is that eventually the wires become such a mess that it's way worse than text. So, um, <laughs> yeah, it's like kind of an example of making simple things hard and hard things impossible. It really doesn't bring anything, you know, it doesn't help. But I think it's actually possible to have a graphical representation um, that can make things um, that could actually be useful for, you know, real programmers. So that's something that kind of excites me. Now, how did all of that uh, lead you to mouse paint? Uh, mouse paint was sort of like, well, um, another logical progression is I've got these graphics routines that, you know, can do pinball construction set. And my friends are building this um, a toolkit on the Mac that can make any program sort of have the benefits of this sort of advanced Xerox style user interface. And hey, I know a lot of uh, tricks on the Apple II. I could do something similar. So actually, mouse paint was a kind of a two-package deal. One piece was mouse paint, which is a pretty obvious clone of Mac paint. But then the other deliverable I had, which was probably very foolish on my part, was to create a reusable library that anyone could use. And that turned out to be like five times more work than mouse paint, which I, you know, if I had just agreed to do mouse paint, would have saved myself a lot of work. Um, because then the routines could have been very specialized and only enough to do mouse paint. But instead, they kind of pushed me to do this general purpose thing that could render proportional fonts, text anywhere on the screen, and menus, um, all the blitting operations. Turned out to be a lot of work to get it all solid enough. I think only one program ever shipped with it. It was called um, Think Pascal, I think, which was kind of an amazing Achievement. I think it required the language card, so it had 128k of RAM. Um, but it was a complete uh, IDE for Pascal on the Apple II. Hmm. That is amazing, actually. Yeah, I think uh, Mousepaint stands as kind of a real triumph on the on the eight bits, just because of the sophistication of it. Is just it uses that that kind of modern GUI feel, and I don't think. Uh, a lot of people realize uh, how how difficult some of that stuff was. You know, the mouse programming on the on the two C was very finicky, as I'm sure you learned, and yeah. uh, just the difficulty of rendering in the high res screen and so on. Yep, yep. And just getting a mouse to work on the Apple II was sort of a challenge. There, mm -hmm. the Apple II didn't really have interrupts turned on. Right. So, uh, quick sidebar. Then uh, I have to. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about your appearance on uh, Computer Chronicles, uh, which we'll link to in the show notes so everyone can see it. Uh, what was that like? Um, so that was the that was the appearance with Trip and uh, Gary Hildall. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, you know, I barely remember it. Um, actually, being there and doing it, um, that, it was during the time when Regis McKenna was running PR, and he, I guess, his um, his people made all these things happen. There were a bunch of things like that. Um, but yeah, to be honest, I, I I don't actually remember much about being on that show. I remember being on Charlie Rose show and how kind of computer illiterate he seemed and 
thought that he really wasn't much substance there. I guess I was wrong about him. He's you know he's still around and widely respected. So I guess if he didn't understand about computers, maybe I judged him a little too harshly. <laughs> so uh, when did you and all of, all of this get actually get hired at Apple? You mentioned you'd mentioned Andy was a good friend of yours. Did he was he a part of that? Yeah, Andy had started at Apple. Um, I guess probably nineteen. 79, 1980, the exact dates. And uh, he told me how great it was, and and, uh, that made me kind of interested. And um, I had gone down there and tried to sell them a game and didn't didn't exactly work out like I described. Um, uh, So I guess I started in 1980 and probably worked there for 18 months maybe. Yeah, I, I read somewhere that you worked on actually worked on the video for the Apple III at one point. Yeah, that was my that was the project that uh, I was hired to do. It was uh, the graphics drivers for the Apple III, and that was very different, I guess, than the Apple II, which you know was just Waz and a few other people um, doing this insane, you know, low cost computer with great capability. And the Apple III was kind of one of these projects where they bring in a bunch of people who really know how to do this stuff and they kind of are coming from a world where they're used to more resources and end up creating something that it doesn't really work all that great and is a lot more expensive. I think there were a lot of constraints on that machine. But So my manager was a guy who didn't really care about like performance that much. Just We had a spec to make 16-bit um, graphics. It had, the, graph, the Apple III had some extra graphics modes. I guess it had sort of like a, a medium res mode that had a lot more colors. The Apple II high res had, had this weird, it was really four colors, but they managed to squeeze out six if you, um, you know, could make some compromises. And it was, it was a little inflexible at how you could get those colors. But if you really focused on it, you could, you could uh, pull off some pretty amazing effects. But I guess they were trying to do it right with the Apple III. But I didn't really, I wasn't that into that job that much. I, Apple for me was just this amazing learning experience. The Apple II guys, uh, Waz still had a cubicle. And he, was, when I started, he was still appearing once in a while. And there was another guy named Bob Bishop who was doing some amazing stuff with the Apple. He was sort of the master of the two-day amazing tech demo. He would do like uh, rudimentary speech recognition on an Apple II, if you can believe that, Mm -hmm. and um, speech generation. Um, He did all kinds of crazy stuff, as long as it only took two or three days. And... uh, well, then there, were, like I said, um, the Lisa people were there, so they were showing some amazing stuff. I had, I never got to go to Xerox Park, but I, I could see the influence and see how amazing it was. You see these very high res displays with beautiful text and graphics. You know, by today's standards, horribly ugly, but but in 1981, amazing. So I got a lot of uh, inspiration, and I was learning a lot just from everybody around me. So is. It- is Apple where you sort of found your your passion for graphics programming specifically, or was that sort of always there? I guess I, I kind of discovered it for myself and kind of invented it for myself. Not that, you know, other people hadn't invented it, but I didn't know about it. And it's sort of like just a lot of things in computer science you can kind of invent yourself. I, I had a wonderful teacher in high school who um, 
didn't she was teaching us we had a an IBM 1401 that was not at school but we could write programs on paper and then send them and she she gave us an assignment and just told us here are the instructions that the IBM 1401 can understand it's assembly language and uh make a program to multiply numbers she didn't tell us about loops so i guess you know i was allowed to discover the loop i i, I could discover that i could add a counter and then i could test and, and i could branch and uh, that was very exciting and then in in uh, we had a basic computer it didn't really have um a stack or um, the ability to do recursion but you could make a stack by storing things in an array and so i wanted to do checkers for instance a checkers game and so I invented stacks and recursion. Uh, they're basic concepts, but a uh, really great you know, way to, to learn stuff is to invent it yourself. And then you discover, well, yeah, it's somebody else figured it out and, and better. <laughs> That's very cool. So do you, do you still have your Apple II or do you remember what happened to it? Yeah, I had it up until a couple of years ago and then I donated it. So it's in a museum. Oh, nice. Yeah. I guess maybe someday I'll be I'll be stuffed and I'll be put next to it. <laughs> <laughs> maybe a wax version of you standing next yeah, to it. Yeah, that's my that's my that's my wish. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever thought about picking up another one just for the nostalgia of it? Uh, no, I don't know. It's funny. Um, I'm not that nostalgic about mm -hmm. uh, you know. It was really a great mach machine, and I had a lot of fun programming it. But computers are so much better now. It's um, <laughs> I, you know, just when you look at the computer power that's available, like in your watch or, you know, in your phone, um, I'm, I'm more excited about, you know, computers being more powerful and bigger and, and the chance to do stuff that uh, empowers people, you know, more, you can write bigger programs now and, and design. I think there's, I think there's some real opportunities. Some kinds of programs haven't really changed much in 30 years, like drawing or painting programs. Um, and I think there are some possibilities for making them uh, much more powerful for like regular people. Yeah, very true. Uh, well, Mike, that's all the questions I have. Do you have any more? Um, I think that'll. Um, I think that's all I've got. Uh, definitely. Uh, thank you very much, Bill, for for joining us today and uh, taking a little walk down memory road. No problem. It's always fun to you know, remember these things. And and um, yeah, I, I just had a ton of fun doing all this stuff. So it's great to reminisce about it every once in a while. Sure. <laughs> Fantastic. All right. Hi, this is Jason Scott, and you are listening to the Open Apple Podcast. Okay, well, that was uh, great. Thank you very much, Bill, for joining us. Um, again, it would have been nicer if we'd had more time, but, you know, um, he had stuff to do, and we, well, didn't, but... <laughs> 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 we do have some news to get to. We do, yeah. Actually, just to just to let the audience in, uh, behind the curtain one more time, uh, what we the hoops we jumped through to get to make that interview happen. Uh, I was actually uh, in the office and uh, I had to had to reserve a conference room, the quietest one I could find, and schedule a meeting and go hide uh, in in an office for <laughs> for uh, for an hour to uh, record that show in the middle of the day. So, uh, yeah, it was uh, it was a big effort, but I'm glad we got it done. Uh, now, did yeah, you have so, to pretend that you actually weren't talking to anyone? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I was after all that I was afraid of like someone coming in the room and, you know, ruining uh what little quiet I could manage and there was a noisy something happening in the in the room next to me, so I had like mm. uh the this the room I was in had a sofa in it, so I had the the sofa cushions. I took them all and piled them all up against the wall to try and try and uh, deaden the sound, uh, which actually worked fairly well. So, uh anyway, the hoops we jumped through for open apple listeners. <laughs> 
All right, on to the news. It may be old, but there's still news. Apple 2 News. So the first item we've got here is our favorite blogger, Jimmy Marr, and uh, he's been talking about my favorite game, Ultima 5. This is pretty exciting, isn't it? it well, it is now. Did the cease and desist you got from Origin, does, are you even allowed to talk about this game? Don't you have to like pretend it doesn't exist? <laughs> yeah, I think I think this is a gray area. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> yeah, if, if anyone 30 asks, years I, later. I, I was never here. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. So uh, Jimmy's, one, of course, one of our favorite bloggers, and, and he writes and writes and writes and writes and writes and writes about mm-hmm. uh, computer history and gaming history. And quite frankly, I don't know why this isn't a book yet, because uh, his blog entries are just amazing and detailed. And every time I read one of these, um, I learn something new, even when it's about products and people that I think that, you know, I've no- I know all the common stories and I've read them in a dozen places a dozen times. And there's always new details that I was not aware of when I check out his pieces. And this time he goes really in depth with uh, Ultima 5. And there's some neat stuff going actually all the way back to uh, Acalabeth. So um, yeah, great article. Nice find. Yeah, yeah, it really is. Uh, You know, I've been watching Jimmy uh, move forward in time with great anticipation for certain titles. And uh, Ultima 5, I mean, this is the one I've been waiting for. Um, You know, this was without a doubt my favorite Apple II game. And uh, Gosh, I can't even count the hours I put into that thing. And uh, it, yeah, I don't think everyone necessarily appreciates the research that, that Jimmy does for these articles. I mean, he finds these, you know, these backstories on people and, you know, the interrelationships between employees at these companies and, the you know, the behind the scenes drama that was taking place and why seen certain decisions were made in the games, you know, as, you know, as a as a teenager or whatever playing these games, you just think, oh, well, everything was, you know sort of fell into place and they designed this game because it was the best way to design it or whatever. But then you read Jimmy's articles and you're like, oh, no, you know, that feature was there because so-and-so had a fight with their wife that day or, you know, whatever. There was this big controversy about this room in that dungeon that, you know, I didn't even think about at the time. So, uh, yeah, the, the, the backstories are really, really wonderful to read. And if you're just in the in the mood for Ultima stuff in general, um, Richard Garriott, I think he sold it now, but he used to have that huge old mansion in uh, in... I don't know, whatever Texas town he lives in. Mm-hmm. Uh, and every year at Halloween, he would have these open house Halloween parties and you could wander through the halls. And of course, it was professionally decorated with spider webs and, and, and scare, you know, scary stuff jumping out at you. But as you walk down the halls, you'd see these, you know, like there's the original box art of a Calabeth and, or, you know, there's the, there's like one of the tapes that's worth tens and tens of thousands of dollars on eBay these days. And, uh, so if you do a uh, uh, like a Google image search, I think of, you know, just like Richard Garriott Halloween or something, you can see some really neat stuff that uh, goes right along with the stories that Jimmy's telling you. Yeah. And there's also uh, there's actually a tour of that house uh, that, that uh, Richard gave on uh, YouTube. And, uh, you know, he goes over some of the highlights like he uh, has um, an observatory and uh, so he goes into all the crazy details of like all the you know, elaborate foundations and steel work they had to do to make a stable base for the telescope and all this. And uh, there's uh, there's a secret room with like secret keys, like a puzzle room that like there's no apparent way in. It's like you can see it from upstairs, but there's no doors. And so there's this like, secret <laughs> passages and stuff. It's yeah, it's 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 sort of exactly what you would imagine when a teenage boy gets really, really rich all of a sudden. I think. <laughs> 
it's, it's exactly the house you would imagine him building. <laughs> but uh, it is it, it is quite a quite a place, I will say. Uh, one of the funnier links in Jimmy's article actually is to some, shall we say, um, controversial comments that uh, Richard uh, made in the press and uh, subsequent mm-hmm. follow-ups and so on. So uh, I do recommend uh, running down all the links in uh, Jimmy's articles as well, because sometimes there's real gems in there that you may or may not have known about some of these personalities. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, there was a, a piece of, there's a thing in, in Ultima 5, as I recall, that at the time when I was a, a young Apple II um, using boy in high school, I, I remember um, that just kind of blew me away was that, um, you know, there's always traps and puzzles and, and games like this. But uh, in in Lord British's castle, there's a secret room that you have to get into, spoilers, folks, 30 years later, <laughs> uh, by playing a tune on the piano. And I just thought that was like the coolest thing to to open that door. Yeah, that, that was really amazing. Yeah. And uh, I actually didn't realize this until I, until Jamie's article, but Ultima 5 was the first Ultima with an actual artist. <laughs> so this is the first one that, that isn't just programmer art. And, uh, oh, wow. Okay. Uh, yeah. And it really shows, you know, that's the one where there's sort of an attempt at, a, at an art style. You know, there's that sort of weird, not quite isometric, not quite 3D perspective on the furniture and stuff that they did in Ultima 5, which, you know, looking back on it now, just looks sort of odd. But uh, at the time, it was like amazing because you were just used to this sort of iconography for everything. And then Ultima 5 was where they started to make an attempt to actually make it feel like environments. And, uh, you know, you could see yourself in the mirrors and you could sit in the chairs and, uh, you know, that was, yeah, that, that just melted my little brain at the time. Uh, so <laughs> I, it was really, really, really fun to, to revisit all that. Um, and this is one, actually one of his shorter articles. So if you just need a quick read, um, this is a good one to start with. For sure. And if you're not following Jimmy's blog, this is a great time to start because he's already in the ramp up to the next big one that I think we're all waiting for, which is Wasteland. So uh, yep. yeah, go go follow Jimmy already if you're not. Uh, all right. Run, don't walk. Yeah, <laughs> moving right along. So the next thing uh, I want to do, this will be a little bit of a sidebar, but uh, I want to do a very quick review of a uh, solid-state storage device. Uh, Steve Chamberlain over at Big Mesa Wires, uh, sort of uh, retro-computing infamous uh, for cornering the market on DB19 connectors, has uh, he's put out the uh, floppy EMU Model B, as many of us know. Uh, it's been talked about on uh, Retro Computing Roundtable and a couple other places. Um, but uh, he uh, sent us a uh, review unit. So um, I've actually written a, a detailed review of it on my blog, which I will link to in the show notes. But uh, I thought I'd also mention it just very quickly here. Uh, I have to say, uh, in general, uh, it's fantastic. Uh, it's a really nice device. It's got a great screen. It's got a, a really nice UI. It handles, as far as I can tell, every disk image format. Um, it uh, works great with 2C+, uh, works you know, internal or external. Uh, it's missing a few little things uh, that like Nishida Radio's Unisdisk has. Um, you know, uh, the Unisdisk, for example, remembers the last disk image you used, which I really like. So you can, you know, put Load Runner in it, and it'll just stay there. And every time you turn the machine on, it'll boot Load Runner. Uh, I like that quite a bit. This one, it boots into kind of a menu, and so the machine won't see it as a drive. And then you choose a disk image, uh, and then kind of reboot. So you know, it's a minor thing, but uh, it would be nice. Uh, and the other thing that might stand out for Apple 2C users, the original 2C, is that it won't boot as the external device. Uh, you know, Nishida Radio has uh, supplies a jumper cable that you can run inside the case, and you can do some trickery there to, to make it boot the external drive, uh, which, of course, you probably want for a floppy disk emulator, uh, since most of these, uh, you know, most of the software is expecting to be uh, be the boot disk. So, 
in any case, I would say definitely uh, worth a look. Especially, I mean, it's a no-brainer if you also collect old Macs uh, or Lisa's or anything like that, because it supports basically everything Apple ever made that uses the DB19 connector this thing now supports. So, uh, uh, and the, the newest one, the Model B with the latest firmware, supports all of them at the same time, which is really cool. So you don't have to change from wow. firmware or anything like that. So uh, you just change a mode in the menus when you want to switch it. So uh, now, it, did did you have the uh, the original um, the original unit? I did not. the The Model B is my first exposure to it. So okay, uh, so you can't do a comparison feature comparison. No, uh, although just from reading the differences on on his site, it looks like. Uh, you know, it's. I think that he's definitely fixed kind of the major issues that people may have had with the old one. Um, you know, for example, the old one, if you had it in the wrong mode when you switched it from Apple II to Mac, you could actually damage things because uh, there was a um, uh, there's a pin that has to be switched. Uh, an input has to be switched from output, and so if you yeah, if you're not careful, you could actually do damage if you plug it into the wrong machine. He's fixed wow. that. Um, okay. The uh, the SD card is is uh, hot swappable now, which I think this is the only. Uh, floppy solution I've seen that does that where you can actually pull the SD card out go change disk images on your computer and put it back in and just keep going uh, which is you know you don't have to reboot or anything so that's really cool uh, and also uh, you can also write to the disk images which not all of these things support so you know which is pretty important if you're playing RPGs and things that write to the disks uh, so uh, this handles that seamlessly you can it'll write to the disk images and modify them uh, on the fly sounds pretty good yeah, and actually what I do like, uh, the, one of my favorite things over, the, say, the Unis disk is it doesn't have to convert the disk images into any, you know, intermediate formats. You know, the Unis disk has to convert everything to, to nib files, uh, whereas this thing will just, uh, whatever disk image you put in there, you know, POs, DSKs, uh, 2MGs, whatever, it'll just manipulate them in place in their existing format. So that's really nice. Uh, so, yeah, it's, uh, you know, Apple II support came late to this device, uh, so it took a little while to get a few of the kinks worked out. But, uh, yeah, I'd say it's really mature now and uh, worth a look. Great. So, Mike, uh, you're it's finally been... doing some some due diligence here for the Apple II community <laughs> as as one of the few owners of a Rev Zero Apple II, uh, that, uh, certainly the only one I know, I think. Uh, you're finally uh, doing some documentation. Yeah, somebody asked me to. Some easy for me to say. <clears throat> someone, someone had asked me to take some pictures up close, and uh, you know, I had. If you were at Kansas Fest 2014, you got to look at it. Um, if you st- if you stopped by my room, then you could have taken a look at it. But I hadn't really taken a lot of good quality photos or anything, or posted it anywhere. I had that, the, the video is still up on YouTube. We'll have a link to that in the show notes of what it does when it doesn't work. Uh, but there are there are fans of this particular, I guess, run of Apple II computers who like to look at the insides of this. So I took some shots and, and of course, you know, there are, there are, there are a number of ways that you can identify an original Apple II or a, a revision zero Apple II as opposed to the Rev 1 and, and later boards. And so I thought it was important to document that. So there's a post up on uh, the 6502lane.net blog. And following that, I got some um, requests for photos of specific areas of the board and things like that that I didn't have. So there will be a follow-up here, uh, there probably by the time you listen to this. Cool. Yeah, it's uh, both fodder for the... Uh 
uh, enthusiasts who like to de- debate the minutiae of uh, this particular uh, era of, of machine, but uh, also, yeah, I think historically valuable because, uh, you know, there's a lot of debate about, oh, when did they switch, you know, from the green slot connectors to the other kind or whatever. And uh, so, yeah, the more examples we have, uh, the, uh, the more complete that information can, can be. And uh, it's, yeah, it's safe to say that the Rev Zero Apple II is going to be the next most valuable Apple II once the Apple I hype dies down. So uh, <laughs> the documentation will help sort of, you know, validate which ones are real and which ones are from which, you know, which are early Rev Zeros and which are late Rev Zeros and so on and so forth. One thing that, that's clear from from looking at this mine, which is later in the run, it's um, and, and some of the earlier ones is that the Apple II at that point was a was in constant revolution or, or constant evolution. There were always there were a lot of changes that were being applied, even just across that initial small run. There were only about six thousand uh, Rev zeros produced, and then there were I think two hundred loose boards that were also sold. Um, and yes, it, it's interesting to watch the boards evolve. My my model is later in the run. It's uh, serial number five zero two five. And so there are a ton of differences even between this one and, you know, a serial number that's 2000 earlier in the run. It's kind of an interesting uh, snapshot of their manufacturing because, you know, being the first sort of really real product the company had produced, you know, the Apple One was just a hobbyist thing they built in their garage or whatever, but this was a this was a real product. And uh, I'm sure they were figuring out their supply chains and, you know, figuring out how to source components and uh, I'm sure that uh, yeah they were learning a lot and they probably signed up to some smaller distributors who couldn't supply the volume they needed and they had to switch and you know so I'm sure it took a long time to get all that sorted out. Well and even back then Jobs was known for being secretive about about what Apple was doing and so uh, not everything was uh, documented even internally you know let alone announced publicly little changes and stuff that's just that you know, you would uh, open up one of these cases and you could, if you look closely, you could see, oh, there's there's a, a new pin over here. And now it's two pins because they're, as they're trying to deal with adding more colors to the machine and, or or dealing with, you know, even solder masks and manufacturing techniques and, and uh, keeping track of all this was made even more complicated because if one of these, some, especially some of the really early machines were, you know, they weren't the most reliable and you would send your machine in to get it fixed and it would come back with a rev three board you know or rev two board and which if if you knew at the time was great but these days if you open it up it's sort of like well you know okay now we've got to figure out where this board actually came from because it doesn't seem to be matching the case that it's in and because you would send it in and rather than make you wait while they repaired your board they would just put a new board in your in your case and send it back to you and then that board would get you know, fixed and put into a newer case. And yeah, there's a lot of confusion uh, about about some of these machines sometimes. So when you see them, especially like on eBay, it's really important to look for certain uh, details. And I, I tried to go over some of those in the post. So yeah, check it out. Cool. Yeah, I bet at the time someone who had their Rev Zero swapped out for a newer board was all like, woohoo. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> like free upgrade. But yeah, and now that same person would be like, no. <laughs> well, that's the thing. Uh, I, functionally, um, uh, from, a, from a user standpoint, this is the certainly the least functional of the Apple II machines. And so in 1978, this would be the one you would want to get rid of as soon as there was a newer version. Yeah. Yes. And I bet there's a lot of people that upgraded to two pluses, which are now you know basically worthless, <laughs> but it might yeah. be sitting in an early case. <laughs> 
Well, and that's that's another challenge. You know, functionally speaking, the only difference between a two plus and a two was the the Apple software on. So you could you could turn a two into a two plus simply by sw- swapping out those ROM chips or back and forth. So it's important, you know, to uh, I think to keep a keep a record or document known boards. So f- for people who are looking for answers about what you know what they bought on eBay, they they can find that somewhere. Yeah, and I bet there's some interesting history there in this in the manufacturing and the supply chain side of it because, of course, this being 77, 78, I mean, the home computer industry didn't exist yet. So I'm sure the companies must have not not must not have thought very much of these tiny, you know, uh, home computer makers coming to them asking for thousands of parts. You know, who knows what their financing looked like or, you know, whether they looked reliable. You, you know, you go to Motorola or, or Texas Instruments or something and you ask for thousands of chips and they're going to be like, uh, I don't know, <laughs> who are you again? <laughs> yeah, there's probably, I, I imagine some of those those big companies, you know, they, they would they would they they could see them come and they knew who Jobs was, you know. And, yeah. Just the eye roll and the sigh and the, you know, the, all the sales executives are suddenly like, got to go to the bathroom, time for lunch break. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's interesting how all the companies, I guess, went about that different ways. You know, Apple, we was all off-the-shelf parts and they were a tiny company trying to do everything themselves. And meanwhile, you know, Commodore were just vertically integrated, everything. And, you know, Radio Shack, they just had the, the distribution and everything in place already. So they were already a big company and they had, yeah. So, yeah, it's, a, it's interesting uh, how that all shook out. There's a there's an there's a, a fascinating history I think and I don't know if it's actually been like um, collated and, and documented in any single source like a, a book or something but especially about uh, companies the, the 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 semiconductor companies like TI and and National Semi and and Fairchild and places like that that where because because the home in, the home computer industry scaled up so quickly. Um, that they found themselves in a position where they would they would take huge orders from companies like Apple and then scramble and like the first batches that they would send out they knew they were bad they would just you know we're we're still trying to get our assembly lines put together and and stuff but at least hey look we delivered the chips we didn't say they'd be good just hold on and then we'll get yeah. the good chips for you here in a little while and i think national it was national semiconductor that got themselves sued by the department of, of defense for exactly that they for knowingly sending out bad chips which probably wouldn't i mean that's bad practice anyway but these chips were in like missile controlled and, and <laughs> fire systems and stuff like that and you yeah. know they the company got got sued and people got fired and but uh, yeah, it's it's interesting to if you read through the the annals of those early info world and computer world newspapers to to sort of follow along the events is at watching Silicon Valley and the companies around it sort of scramble to cope with something that they just did not see coming at all. Yeah, I think I think that Commodore book uh, was it called On the Edge, something like that. I think that book yeah. they, t- they talked about it. That yeah, where one of their major suppliers. Uh, agreed to a contract and you know of course they're highly incentivized to do that because there's so much money on the line so you know you, you want to get that paper signed no matter what and yeah they they delivered really poor yields knowingly for the first month or whatever while they spooled up their their fabrication and and uh yeah that was uh that was a little sketchy <laughs> that's what happened to uh to the, the clock chip in the apple three yeah apple three see how i worked that in there <laughs> uh national was having trouble uh, scaling up to to not not just Apple's request but uh, all these other companies that they were they were skipping out on on QA and things like that and 
according to Dr. Uh, Dr. Sander, creator of the Apple III, um, National ended up with uh, a contaminated line. All the chips had this, this contamination, and that's why the clock chips failed, and Apple didn't have another manufacturer to go to, and so they just pulled the chips out of the Apple III. Mm, yeah. So hold on a second. I'm just, just checking the pool here. Uh, who had 27 minutes into the news before Mike would win ah, the Apple III? There we go. Uh, oh, yeah. It's just Randy. Okay. Uh, your, your check's in the mail, Randy. <laughs> uh, yeah. And even, <sighs> even with the best of intentions, things went wrong. You know, as the uh, you know early and mid-80s uh, trundled along and the, the home computer market really spooled up, I, I remember there was a big problem with RAM chips, uh, you know, being a real, there's a real shortage of those. Everybody needed them really badly. And so I think you see the designers scrambling, changing designs a lot there. You know, Apple II started out with 12-volt RAM and they went to the 5-volt RAM and, you know, they're using DRAMs. Other machines are using SRAMs, but, you know, Apple used the DRAMs because they were more available. So, you know, the designs would change within the model line just based on, on the scarcity of RAM chips. That was uh, that was quite a problem at the time. And uh, especially the larger sizes, you know, a lot of these early microcomputers, even if they had 64K, it might be, you know, in 2K chips. And so there'd be, you know, three, <laughs> you know, three quarters of the motherboard would be 2K RAM chips. And I think that's what they could get that year. Anyway, all right, well, moving right along, uh, you know, I'm uh, for all the supply chain problems that we had here in the U.S., I wonder, I wonder what kind of problems they had in uh, Eastern Bloc countries at the time. Uh, as, uh, you know, we, we've talked a few times in the show uh, in the past about the interesting clones that came out of uh, other countries that were out of reach of the then uh, nascent Apple company lawyers. And, uh, you know, there's a lot that came out of South America and especially a lot that came out of Eastern Europe, uh, in particular uh, Bulgaria and Romania. Uh, they had uh, big uh, IT industries at the time. And uh, for, for whatever reason, well, I guess because the Apple II, as we said, was made from off-the-shelf parts, the Apple II was highly clonable. And uh, so clone they did. Um, one of our uh, listeners, in fact, sent us this uh, pretty sweet list of uh, communist era eastern bloc apple II clones so uh, we will link to that in the show notes that's uh, thank you listener rob for sending that along uh, have you seen any of these mike i've not seen any of these in person in fact other than the i think other than the province and maybe the the basis or basis mm-hmm. 108 i had not even heard of a lot of these uh, you know in in the 80s of course and the you know reagan and the white house and uh, the the anti-Soviet, anti-communist rhetoric, and and there were strict export controls for things like Apple computers, and so uh, these Eastern Bloc company or Eastern Bloc countries had to make do with you know smuggling a unit in from the U.S. At a, from a trade show or something, and figuring out how to clone it, and you know it looks like at the time the you know Bulgaria and um, and Yugoslavia especially are, you know, kind of what China is now as far as making cheap knockoffs and, and um, supply and coming up with their own solutions. Uh, but, yeah, this is a fascinating, uh, fascinating article. Uh, yeah. You know, it starts off, there's a, there's a picture of uh, a keyboard. Um, I don't, it looks like the, it's from something called the Romanian HC91. Um, the, the keys are just like decorated with green and red, and then yeah. there's, in, in addition to the letters, there's a bunch of functions on them. It's fascinating stuff. Yeah, that keyboard's beautiful. I, I really want to know what what uh, what that thing is all about. Uh, yeah, I mean, I know some of these machines by name, the Privates and so on, but I've never certainly never seen one in person or anything. It would be amazing to have one show up at Kansas Fest. Uh, 
But uh, yeah, and you know, you see the the ripple effects of that. Uh, you know, in my long career in video games, uh, I worked with a great many uh, Bulgarian programmers, actually, and uh, you know, other uh, Bulgarians from similar related high tech uh, areas of, uh, of of these projects. And I think that's you know that's the, the the you know reaping the the rewards of this kind of investment that they had made in the '80s. You know, all these. Bulgarian teenagers grew up with this stuff, and uh, it was such a hotbed of, of technology at the time. And now, you know, they produced all these great, really talented uh, engineers and other technologists. So, uh, let that be a lesson to uh, to our own country now that uh, hey, maybe we should be uh, investing uh, in the future as opposed to uh, uh, scaling everything back like we always seem to be doing. There's uh, there's an interesting like as I was scrolling through this article while we were talking. In fact, there's a link at the bottom from ZDNet to a gallery of photos that we've taken. We've talked about this um, uh, Italian Apple Museum before, um, and, but I'd never seen. And I'd seen, I guess, maybe a few sort of amateur photos. But there, there's actually a nice collection of professional photos. Like it's like a Macintosh Plus that's been stamped with Apple Cat for some reason. <laughs> um, but yeah, there's some some great pictures there as well. So some good stuff over on ZDNet to to check out when you have a minute. Yeah, some beautiful photographs. So. By all means, go check it out. All right. Uh, let's see. This next item I'm just going to skip over because it's really no, 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 uh, uh, no, no, no. So, so Quinn, um, you were <laughs> you were interviewed by Circuit Seller. I was. Now, to be fair, uh, this is actually a year old. Uh, so oh, it I, is. Okay. Yeah, I posted it on for a Throwback Thursday on uh, I think on the on the uh, the social medias. But uh, yeah, it, uh, it made the rounds again. Uh, in fact, uh, well, they posted it for TBT, and then I, uh, I think I retweeted it or something. Oh well, then so. never mind. Forget it. Forget it. Yeah. Never mind. Let's <laughs> yeah. move on. Wait, wait, wait. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. Uh, but yeah, it's just it's just a recap of um, uh, the, some of the stuff I did on uh, building uh, Veronica, which I've talked a little bit about on the show, making an eight bit computer from scratch, um, and uh, there might be some Apple II content in there. I'm sure I mentioned um, getting started with that. Um, so yeah. Anyway, uh, maybe we'll link to it in the show notes. But if nothing else, there's some, there's a couple of great photos of uh, Quinn's work areas for the small, clean stuff and the big, dirty <laughs> stuff. <and laughs> probably where she disposes of the occasional body. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. We don't we don't like to talk about that uh, <laughs> on the air, but. Uh, uh, yeah, those workspaces mostly look the same. Uh, the small clean project area now has a crap load more Apple II stuff in it <laughs> than in that photo because <laughs> uh, I wasn't uh, full bore into the back into the Apple II yet at the time. Uh, so I'm in that room right now and looking behind me, uh, I see giant stacks of uh, five and a quarter inch floppy disks and there's two C plus and there's 78 solid state storage devices and two different monitors and yeah, uh, yeah, the, the Apple II is, is absorbing that room as we speak, so which is, you know, a good problem to have. Of course. <laughs> All right, uh, let's see. Let's get uh, let's get on down to Brutal Lux. Uh, it's been 38 seconds since we talked about them, so I think <laughs> we're due. And uh, Antoine's doing something very interesting here on uh, YouTube. I'm not sure I totally understand this. Uh, help me out here, Mike. So I think um, as, as by way of a quick introduction, we've... Uh, try, try as we might, uh, we haven't been able to convince anybody out there that we're the only ones that, that uh, are doing Apple II podcasting sort of stuff. <laughs> uh, so we'll go ahead and give in and, and, uh, you know, we've, we've talked about, um, 
um, Chris, and we've talked about uh, Option 8's uh, their, their, uh, video podcasts. And there's another one that uh, Antoine has uh, has done a few of. It looks like he's got nine videos up now. And I, th- I believe that these are live cracking videos where he, he's got videos of himself cracking different games and, and talking about uh, his process as, as it's being cracked. So uh, pretty cool stuff. Yeah, these are so the ones that I watched. This is an interesting thing. Uh, he's he's shooting close-up video of the floppy drive while it's booting various protected software, and my understanding is it's sort of like a training course for recognizing copy protection schemes based on what the drive head is doing, and uh, it's very interesting to watch. Actually, uh, you know, for someone like me who doesn't know a whole lot about floppy disks and uh, the intricacies of them. Uh, it's interesting to see how different uh, everything is when it boots and, you know, how some of the crazy stuff that the software does with the head uh, when it's booting. Uh, so it doesn't, yeah, it doesn't mean a whole lot to me, but it's definitely interesting to watch. So, yeah, check it out. Definitely. Uh, this next item is from Hackaday, and it's kind of neat, but uh, also kind of sad. Uh, every so often you see something in the mainstream or... Uh, sort of non-retro computing community that's Apple II related, and uh, you see people doing stuff that they don't—they uh, don't know what they're doing. Maybe well, they know what they're doing, but they don't understand the damage that they're doing. Let's say it that way. <laughs> uh, random example from another field: There's a, a lady Ada who I like very much uh, of Ada Fruit mm-hmm. Industries. Recently, did a video where she upgrades a Next sound box to uh, to play USB audio. And uh, it's cool, but the next sound box is really sought after and rare, and it's a shame to watch them get uh, cut up. But uh, yeah, there's uh, a uh, what's uh, Jerry Ellsworth actually has a picture of a, I think it's the the Zip Eight Thousand where she's like melted the plastic down oh, around oh it no. to see what's inside it, you know. No. <laughs> and uh, it's I mean it's it's on the one hand you're like wow it's really cool because now we know it's behind the what's in this thing but jerry why that chip yeah Yeah. that must be how henry felt when he sent a transwarp off to get sanded down (laughs) i think he talked about that yeah yeah so this is kind of one of those uh someone at a hackerspace found a uh, a lego technic control center and this was the very first programmable uh lego device so lego got into Lego had this, um, back in the 80s, 70s and 80s, had this educational arm uh, whose name escapes me now. It started with a D. Um, but uh, they had this educational arm, and they made crazy cool products that you couldn't buy as a consumer. And why they decided to divide it up that way, I don't know. But schools could buy this crazy stuff that, that nobody else could. One of those things was this little electronics box that you could connect motors and lights to and it plugged into an interface card for the Apple II. And uh, as far as I know, it was only available for the Apple II. Uh, I'm sure Kevin Sabbats will correct me if I'm wrong. But, uh, or even uh, if you're not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, the, yeah, so the, the, someone came into this hackerspace with this thing, including the Apple II interface card, mind you. And both of these devices are quite rare and quite sought after. There are people specifically who collect... Uh, weird Apple II interface cards like this, and there's people who specifically collect old uh, Lego technology stuff. And, uh, you know, there's been a bunch of stuff since then. There's been the, the trains and, you know, the modern Mindstorm stuff, and there was some other things along the way, but this was the very first one. So uh, 
the because of the thinnest of excuses mainly that they, nobody could find an <laughs> apple II, and then someone had one but it wouldn't boot for whatever reason it doesn't sound like they tried real hard to get this thing to work the way it was intended instead they tossed the interface card and proceeded to rip apart the lego technic control center box uh and wired up with an arduino which uh just made me cry frankly <laughs> it's uh so there's some pictures of them tearing this thing apart uh it's a bit neat if you want to see what's inside it because if i had one i would not rip it apart uh they did so destructively unfortunately they cut some plastic parts and stuff so um yeah if you do want to see what's inside it uh there's some nice pictures uh but uh yeah you might want a stiff drink before reading this article <laughs> and if you want to get even more in depth on the lego technic technics card Alex, um, now I always pronounce it Lukasi, but I guess it's something else. Sorry, Alex, I, I don't know how to pronounce your last name. Three, three different people have told me three different ways to pronounce it. Uh, he um, has an Apple II project blog entry where he goes into uh, what this card is and how it's made and how you can wire up one of your own. So we'll have the links to that in the show notes. Cool. All right, so moving right along, the uh, last item we've got is uh, it, it has been well-trod in retro podcasting circles, and it's not strictly yeah, it's Apple II. Yeah, it's on boing-boing, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's not strictly Apple II related, uh, and, you know, Retro Computing Roundtable and others have talked about this, but I just can't not mention this because uh, <laughs> it, it means a lot to me personally. Uh, so, of course, we're talking about the classic Usborne uh, children's computer programming books, which have been uh, released in PDF form uh, to the public. And uh, these books were just really, really formative to me. Um, so I'm linking to the Boing Boing article because I think their coverage of, it, of this uh, was really nice. They have some great uh, images from the books that you will definitely remember. And uh, so, you know, these were the uh, 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 computer game books where they had, you know, listings in them that you could type in and they taught you all about how the different computers worked. It was, so it may not, I think they were less popular in the U.S., but they were very popular in Britain where it was born is based. And they were, by extension, fairly popular in Canada because we got a lot of British stuff in Canada. And so they, uh, the, the listings in them are mostly British computers. You know, there's ZX Spectrum and BBC Micro and this kind of thing, but they did have Apple II stuff as well. Uh, so yeah, I grew up with these books and uh, just, oh, I'm just the, the, the nostalgia bomb that I got seeing those images <laughs> uh, is hard to understate because, or overstate because, uh, yeah, I had the, I had a couple of these books. I had the uh, Computer Battle Games one, I think it was. It had the fighter jet on the cover and I had a, another one, the, the Fantasy Games one. And I mean, I wore them out. I carried them everywhere I went, and, you know, I typed these programs in over and over, and I modified them, and I picked them apart, and, you know, the area I grew up in, we didn't have a lot of access to computer programming materials, so these books were, uh, they were like a beacon in the dark for me, and uh, I self-taught myself, you know, an awful lot of programming from these books, and, you know, and I, what I love about them is how forward-thinking they were, how forward-looking they were. I mean, the 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 gall, for lack of a better word, to teach assembly language to ten year old kids in nineteen eighty two is just you know is it's amazing the, the the foresight to do that. So imagine how you might do that, right? You might design a you know a comic book with cartoon robots plugging hex values into memory locations, and that's exactly <laughs> what these books are. Uh, looking back at the images now, I can't believe it. I mean, nowadays you know we teach programming to kids through you know Scratch and uh, you know, these other very kid-friendly programming languages. But here we're trying to, you know, 
the only option they had was to teach basic or assembly language and you know basics fairly easy it was designed to be that way but assembly language you know trying to teach that to kids uh, wow just what a what a task they took on here uh, so the, the artwork is amazing uh, the, the books are amazing so yeah you, you have to go look at these that's that's all I have to say about that all right <laughs> well uh, that's I think that's all the news we've got uh, I think we have a, a short woos segment do we not uh, we do, yes. Um, uh, Waz is sick of your shit. <laughs> we like Waz, and we know you do too. It's Waz news. It's Woos. He's posted, I guess, on over on Facebook that he's, you know, we've we've mentioned before that at least up till now he would sign pretty much anything you put in front of him. I, I remember when he showed up at uh, Kansas Fest in 2013. He and Randy Wigginton sat at that table for a good 90 minutes just signing stuff. So um, at the time, he seemed pretty okay with that, but not anymore. <laughs> uh, he posted on Facebook, uh, quote, I'm tired of watching uh, my check-ins. Uh, I'm tired of people watching my check-ins and waiting to ambush me at events, in hotels, and in airports for autographs. You always stand and act the same and have the same photo, all, photos all over the country. From now on, I'll, I'll say no instantly. It's not convenient for me, and we are not real friends this way. And, he fo- <laughs> and then he uh, uh, follows up. Um, I'm sure that there were some people like, wow, what's up with that? Um, so he says, I forgot to mention that I sign a few, and they have a few more, and a few more, and a big stack, and baseballs, and Apple products, and sometimes – one person wants 50 or more autographs, and yet they're not true f- uh, friends or fans. Uh, oh, many maybe incidental fans. I've been around people I admire and ask for an autograph because it is meaning to me, but I would never ask for 10 or 20 or 50 autographs to sell. Limiting it to one per person is fine, maybe even two if they have artifacts with stories. I'll never cut out fans from that. It's the money grovers that cheapen my values. When I speak, I often stay long after to meet fans who would love to just shake my hand and whatever. I did that for an unplanned hour last night in Toledo. I extended my stay uh, for the same sort of thing to let people in a special reception for sponsors or university staff meet me. Once I stayed for three hours to meet everyone at an event in Mexico City, but I'm tired of phony fans making a buck off of it. So there you go. You better be careful if you uh, ask him to sign something for you. <laughs> yeah, strong words from the Waz. Uh, yeah, I mean, of course, the Waz is known for not having much of a, of a filter. And uh, I think if you uh, if you d- dig into his words there, what he's really tired of is, is people taking advantage of his generosity to sell stuff on eBay with his signature on it. So... Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. I would definitely would not hes- hesitate to approach him if you have a treasured, you know, Apple thing that you would like him to sign. Sure. Yeah. I don't think that's a problem. And, and you know, um, this being an Apple II podcast, we don't really talk about sports too much, obviously, obviously but I guess that's a big problem in, uh, for certain sports figures, you know, where, where they get they get hounded by you know, autograph seekers, which is fine. You want to meet your heroes and whatever, but a lot of these guys turn out to be, you know, um, card store owners or just eBay types where they want you to sign everything, not because they, they give a darn about you or, or your autograph. It's just what it's worth to them. And that's, and, and there's two ways to approach that. I think in that position, you either sign everything. And so your uh, autograph doesn't intrinsically hold a lot of monetary value, which is what Waz does, or you sign nothing at all. But, uh, and while that, that makes it easy because you just have a, you know, you can say, Hey, I have a policy that I don't sign anything, but 
on the odd occasion that you do sign something, then that becomes very, very valuable. So it's kind of a quandary, and it sounds like Waz is, and he may have just had like a bad experience with somebody and after a long flight or something, but um, yeah. maybe he's uh, scaling that back a little bit, and then who could blame him? Yeah, and with Apple's continued prominence uh, these days and the death of Jobs, you know, I think he's uh, he sort of crossed crossed a little bit of a threshold there on the fame scale, where now suddenly his signature increases the value of things appreciably on on eBay. So, uh, no doubt people are you know there's a, an incentive there to to harass the poor guy now. So, well, uh, if you do have something that you want signed and you live, I don't know, halfway around the world, uh, and you know you're probably never going to run into him. The, there is that signed by Waz thing where you can send them your item and pay him a, a fee and he'll sign it and send it back to you. So there's that option as well. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, that was our uh, long dormant woos section reawakened. Uh, <laughs> I hope we managed to get the bumper in there. <laughs> oh, of course. We, since we recorded it, might as well use it. Uh, <laughs> speaking of dormant segments, uh, let's go on to weird gaming. You know Choplifter, you know Load Runner. But do you know this? It's time for a weird game. So uh, we wanted to try something a little different this time around. Uh, we got an excellent, excellent suggestion uh, from a, uh, a listener to to do a weird game, and it, it's such a great it was such a great suggestion. This is uh, listener Tom. Thanks again for this, Tom. Uh, that I thought Mike and I should both play it and compare notes. And so angry with you, <laughs> right? This thing was. <laughs> This thing is delightful and surprising and angering at this, all at the same time. Uh, I had no idea this thing existed, so wow, I can't thank Tom enough for bringing this to our attention. Uh, the game in question is uh, the late Douglas Smith's uh, Miner, and it is the prototype for Loadrunner. So I had no idea such a thing existed, and it does not appear to have been commercially released because uh, the shocking, the, yeah, right. Uh, the disc image that we've got, it's it's full of debug features. You know, you can just press a key to advance through levels and then there's another key to give yourself, you know, more men. And so it's clearly like a debug build slash demo type of thing. And uh, you can, without a doubt, you can see the DNA of Loadrunner here, but it's terrible. <laughs> let's just, let's be <laughs> clear about that. This game is awful. Uh, the controls uh, are almost unplayable. Um, they're so bad. But uh, we'll start with the good stuff. Um, the title screen is fantastic. There's a, <laughs> a really lovely animation to open the game. And uh, you can see the, uh, the famous Loadrunner font, which is very nice. Uh, it's, uh, it's very, you know, graphically attractive. And, but, uh, yeah, it's sort of fascinating. I, I mean, I would describe it as... It, it's as though someone described Loadrunner to an alien, and then the alien sat down and made it. Uh, because it's sort of load runner esque, but it, it's just all the details are wrong. Uh, you know, the tiles are too small, and the the dude runs really fast, and the enemies are weird robot things. They're not people, and uh, you know the, the 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 chests come back after you've gotten them, and so this yeah, the the level layout is poor. Uh, the physics are weird. Such <laughs> as everything about it is just <laughs> a little wrong. Uh, so what was your impression of it, Mike? Uh, I have, um, some notes here that I took and they start out with the words in caps, very beta. <laughs> yes. Um, 
I, uh, I, you, you sent me an email actually just a couple of hours ago as we were recording this that we should play this, and I went yay, and then afterwards I went boo, Quinn, boo. <laughs> uh, I didn't bother to to make a disc image of it and boot it on a real Apple. I just played it in Apple Win, and maybe I thought I was thinking that maybe that was the problem, but it sounds like you experienced the same thing that I did, and that's that it's. Um, it's half baked. It's the the speed, especially, is like way out of balance. Mm-hmm. Um, you move a lot faster than everything else that's happening on the screen, and weirdly, like the animation of your little guy is nice and smooth, but the robots kind of like they're there and then they disappear and then they appear <laughs> in the block next to them and they disappear and then they, yeah. you know, that's how they move. And um, I, I couldn't get past level two, mm-hmm. um, except for once or twice because. You're moving so quickly that it's hard to like. Level two has one of those areas where it's it's like a multi-level dig where you know mm-hmm. you have to dig three, drop, yep. run over, dig two, drop. And I couldn't. I had such a hard time getting three next to each other because mm-hmm. you move too far, and then you'd have to sit there and wait for them to fill back in. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, and so so your little guy he moves smoothly, but nothing else really does. Um, half the sound isn't there. Like the digging sound is there, and it's really loud. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's no the, the little dropping sound isn't there. The little zap sound that it makes when you die isn't there. Um, there's no between level that, that that sort of opening iris effect that Loadrunner has. And you know, I guess the final thing that really drives home that it's beta is when you're going through the menus like you said there are menu options that say you know option to add additional men for testing so uh it's sort of like when when you play load runner it's such a visually uh it's such a visually unique experience you know immediately when you see it on the screen what that is there's no question but this is a, a reminder that the gameplay if anything is just as big or even maybe bigger uh, a part of the experience because you just remove a few items and, and and you tweak it just a little bit and suddenly it becomes this awful unplayable experience. Yeah, that's that's a great point. I mean, for all intents and purposes, this is Load Runner, but yeah, a couple of details are different. Uh, you know, the the controls are a little different, the speeds a little different, and suddenly it's just it's just the worst game ever. <laughs> so yeah, <laughs> you, you know what what kept throwing me was in it not only the speed, but the tiles are smaller. And yeah. mm-hmm. I, I don't know if it's just that they're too small or that I'm just not used to them because I'm so used to the load runner tile size, but what a difference that makes in the gameplay. The tiles being too small, it is just, it really, it makes the game so much harder. Like you said, to those multi-level digs, uh, hitting ladders is really hard. I, I kept falling off ladders all the time because I couldn't mm, hit them. Yep. And then, you know, the level design is is really rough as well. So Anytime you make a mistake, you fall into some pit, you know, where you can't get out of and it's full of enemies or, you know, you, you get trapped in some area that you can't climb out of and you're forced to reboot and <laughs> all these kinds of, <laughs> all these kinds of, of idiosyncrasies. So, uh, yeah, you can see the, the germ of Load Runner here, but it really makes you appreciate how much iteration and polish goes into a game like that. It's easy to think about Load Runner because you look at the, the end product is so sort of self-evidently brilliant that you think, oh, this must just have sprung forth from, you know, the, the genius mind of, of Doug Smith. But now you see, oh, okay, there was a lot of bad ideas that had to get worked out first <laughs> to get to that. Yeah. You know, it's uh, uh, like there we say, ideas... between here and there. Yeah, yeah. Like we always say in, game, in the game industry, ideas are easy, executions are hard. And this is just perfect proof of that. Uh, you know, and lots of people had ideas for games like Load Runner, but it's the polish, it's the hard work of tuning the controls and tuning the level design that made Load Runner good. It's not, uh, it's not the idea uh, or the design of it. So, 
Uh, and I but, guess if 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 anything, I I just I come away from this really grateful that Doug Smith actually did take it to the load runner that we know and love today because the game is completely playable as it is. He could have you know just take those options out of the out of the um, menu to like add lives and stuff and mm-hmm. and maybe add some crappy music in the background and could have released this and and it would have just been this this thing that you know would have gotten a few bad reviews and would have been forgotten. Yeah, and there was thousands of Apple II games like that where those games that you play one or two sessions of and you're like, oh, this just isn't that good. It seems, I don't know, it's, it's too hard or whatever. You And you just put it away and you don't think anything about it again. You know, that's the difference is that there's those extra hours and hours of effort to, to polish it is the difference between a, a seminal, you know, genre-defining hit and just another forgettable, mediocre thing that you toss away. Or even an arcade game like Elevator Action. <laughs> Wow, you got the Apple III and your Patriot of Elevator action into one show. But I'm you're, you're in rare forms tonight, Mr. McGinnis. <laughs> I'm on fire. <laughs> uh, but yeah, this this minor thing is it's an absolutely wondrous artifact, and I love that it exists. So yeah, I encourage yeah, encourage everyone to go look at it, and you will appreciate Load Runner even more for having seen this thing. And, uh, you know, how often do you get to see a prototype of a famous game like this? And, uh, you know, here it's been hiding on Asimov all along. Now, mind you, it's buried Mm -hmm. three zip files deep uh, on Asimov. (laughs) It's literally inside a couple of other uh, collections, and then it's uh, itself zipped up. So you you might not have ever found it if not for listener Tom. Uh, So thanks again, Tom. But we will, yeah, we'll link to, yeah, we'll link to a... uh, uh, we'll give you a link in the show notes where it exists, and you may have to dig a little bit, but uh, it's in there. It's called Miner, and uh, and you will find it if you uh, if you go in there a little bit. So, and the, the other thing, like I I I've gone through a lot of stuff that's in in Asimov um, with a fine tooth comb, but I think like what threw me was because it's called Miner. My brain went, oh, Miner twenty forty nine, or I know what this is. I don't have to play it, and it's totally not that. Yeah, I would have thought either it's Minor 2049er or it's any number of other sort of generic kinds of games like that. I mean, there was, not that that game is generic, but uh, it's sort of a generic sounding name. You know, there's lots of 80s games with names like that. And right. it, so it doesn't sound like much. Uh, so, yeah, I'm not sure I would have, I probably would have passed right over this and never even uh, gave it a shot. So what what an artifact. Thank you, Tom. Mm. All right, well, moving right along, uh, we've got a tech segment as well, uh, which is another segment that's uh, been a little bit uh, gathering dust lately. That's the, I guess, the side of the side benefit <laughs> of a shorter interview is uh, we get to bore you with uh, all of our old segments that we don't do anymore. Fasten your seat bits and warm up your soldering irons. It's time to talk tech. So I've been uh, fairly busy with my Apple IIc Plus lately, and uh, so we, a couple months ago we talked on the show about how I had uh, disassembled the uh, portion of the ROM that uses uh, that makes the beep noise, uh, because as we all know, the IIc Plus has a weird and incorrect beep. And uh, so the, I, I kind of went at it again, and this time what I wanted to do was change the default behavior of the IIc Plus accelerator. The IIc Plus defaults to booting into 4 megahertz, which you know was awesome for your Apple Works and your PFS in 1987, but in 2016, when I just want to play Low Runner and not have to reset and hold down Escape and reset again every single time, uh, it's super annoying. <laughs> so I thought, let's see if I can fix that. 
So I will uh, spare you the gory details here. I've got a blog post about it, which I will link to in the show notes. But uh, I did manage to find a way to do this. There are a few ways to go about doing this, I think. Uh, since since my hack, actually, uh, Antoine, of course, <laughs> one up to me and pointed out a better way to do it. He actually found some code uh, that I had been looking for in the ROM and couldn't find uh, the key that actually uh, the code that actually checks the escape key for the default value of the accelerator. I wasn't ever, ever able to actually find that code, uh, but I went about it a different way. Uh, I just kind of uh, reverse the state of the accelerator after it's been initialized. Uh, so you, it, the effect is that uh, if you boot, it boots into one megahertz, and if you hold down escape, it'll switch to after switch to four megahertz. So you still wow, get cool. the yeah, you still get both modes, uh, but the default is now one megahertz instead of four. And if you want four megahertz as before, you just reboot while holding down escape. Uh, so uh, I've got a ROM image now with that change and also the uh, beep correction. Uh, so it's kind of my uh, ultimate 2C plus ROM, if you will. And uh, I will be bringing that to Kansas Fest. I'm still determining I may be able to provide those ROMs for people, um, probably at a uh, small for a small fee if anyone wants to bring their 2C plus or just. Uh, uh, bring your wallet and uh, yeah, I can give you a ROM and uh, you can take it home. Uh, I can't uh, I can't di- actually distribute the ROM code online uh, officially because it is still Apple code that's copyrighted, oh. unfortunately. Yeah, so I can't just share the, the, the ROM image uh, technically. Um, but, uh, you know, if you're at Kansas Fest, maybe, uh, maybe we'll see what we can do. Yeah, that's we've been pretty fortunate uh, here in, in this community that Apple has... Um, I think probably decided to, you know, so far anyway, look the other way on some stuff and just pretend that maybe we didn't do that or, you know, that this isn't out there. Um, and we'd hate to provoke them into something that they look at and go, all right, we're actually going to have to take action on this. So, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, the, uh, the eye of Sauron, uh, has so far <laughs> overlooked the Apple II retro, uh, community. So I'd like to keep it that way, but, uh, uh, yeah, you know that, I mean, the, like, yeah, the, I will say I think that I believe that my uh, ultimate ROM is out there if you look hard enough. I believe it might be already on the internets, uh, but uh, if not, um, yeah, come to Kansas Fest and maybe uh, maybe something will happen. Awesome. All right. Uh, let's see. I think that's all I've got. Uh, Mike, anything else you want to touch on? Uh, we do have some feedback. Do you want to read a couple of emails or should we hold that till next month? Uh, let's hold that actually unless I've got a couple here but i think i want to save those for now because i think one of one of our feedbacks i think might be a guest that we should have on <laughs> okay well uh your voices do matter on open apple just not this month <laughs> yeah, that's right we want to hear from you but eh, not that badly eh. <laughs> that's right <laughs> no in all seriousness uh yeah please do write us uh to uh, feedback at open-apple.net or podcast at open-apple.net we love to hear from you folks and uh don't forget to uh, please support us on patreon we haven't mentioned that in a while so uh like uh, public radio we have to occasionally badger you uh very annoyingly to please uh <laughs> please give us your money so that we can keep doing this so uh, we'll have uh, a link uh of course on our site to our patreon campaign if you like what we do and are feeling so inclined uh throw us a couple of bucks and that's all i've got bye everybody the first thing you have to do is have a big idea and i spent 10 years thinking about the home computer market and the home computer software market specifically, and it took me nine and a half years to think of the big idea. And the big idea is the software artist. Actually, that's one of the appeals of electronic arts is I get to separate myself. I mean, I can 
all of a sudden have this pure existence where I write software at home and I write it for me and Electronic Arts sort of looks at it and says, oh, this is pretty good, we're going to sell it. And they go off and sell it and they send me money. I want to have the company known as being the best marketing company in the business. Um, and I'd like to be ranked and compared with uh, the great consumer marketing companies of all times. And I think we can do that over a number of years if we work at it. Because we know how important it is to do good marketing. We know how important it is to support our retailers in, in, a, in a way that will um, make us successful. When we talk about software as an art form, what we really mean by that is our software is deep, it gives a big experience, there's a lot to it, there's a lot going on, it's very, very creative. All of the things associated with the word art. It seems a little pretentious to me sometimes to, if I think of myself as a software artist. I mean, you really have to prove it, and I think I've been better than most. I mean, I don't, when I do something, I don't crank out 500 copies just for the money. Um, I think being a software artist means trying to push the medium. So I think that uh, software is an art form, and, and it's becoming more and more artful all the time. And you're, we're starting to see the kind of people that are really good at doing great software behave more and more like artists are traditionally expected to behave. This has been the Open Apple Podcast. Subscribe to us in iTunes or visit us at open-apple.net where you can browse our extensive catalogue of past episodes or read our blog. If you like what you've heard today, or even if you didn't, your comments, questions or ideas are always welcome. Send them to feedback at open-apple.net.